Welcome to the Law with DK Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 57, Miller versus California. This is a 1973 case, and it's a First Amendment case. I love these First Amendment cases because the ones like this one that make it to the Supreme Court usually involve extreme examples of speech. Now, they often like this one involve, with air quotes, adult material. Now, we went over this topic about obscenity and the First Amendment and the freedom of speech back in episode 33 when we discussed Jacob Bellis versus Ohio. That was a 1964 case. So this Miller versus California is 1973, not even 10 years later. In this case, Miller, that we're going to talk about today, changed up what the Supreme Court said about what is protected and what is not that they said in Jacob Bellis and in some other cases. They have switched up what is protected and what is not several times in a couple decade period. It's pretty much settled at this point, but they were going back and forth all over the place for a couple of decades on this topic. We'll talk about what changed between Jacob Bellis and this case, Miller versus California. And these changes are problematic. Because if the law keeps changing, people don't know what's protected, what they can do, what they can't do, what might subject them to jail, and what is allowed. So we'll talk about that. We'll discuss what makes that so. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams, that's me, is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. Follow this podcast on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at The Law, D-K-W, and on Facebook.com slash The Law with D.K. Williams. Love to hear from you, and if you're so inclined, rate, like, share, all of that. You know the drill. All of that helps us reach a wider audience. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching, talking to people. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for more details on that. Miller is the person who was convicted of distributing obscenity in California. And what he had done to get in trouble was he sent out a mass mailing advertising the availability of adult, again with the air quotes, material. That just doesn't seem like very good marketing, but nevertheless, that's what he did. He didn't target his, his list. It's not like he had addresses of people that had frequented a shop, a particular type of shop, right? He just sent it out to everybody within a certain geographic region. Not a good idea. And as my favorite legal website, Oyez.com, put it, some unwilling recipients of Miller's brochures complained to the police initiating the legal proceedings. So he was found guilty of violating a California state law at the time against the distribution of quote-unquote obscene materials. He was convicted and he appealed all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and where he lost there as well, and that's what we're going to be talking about, that particular case. Now, as a reminder, I always put a link to the actual Supreme Court opinion in the show notes. And I mentioned Oyez, which is O-Y-E-Z dot com, because it is a great site. It gives a synopsis of the facts, gives a summary of the holding, has a link to the oral arguments in these modern cases, including this one from 1973. You can click on the sound and listen to the arguments, and then you can also listen to the announcement of the decision. It's pretty cool if you want to check it out. It's got some interactive features. It's got like a picture of all the Supreme Court justices, and if one of them's asking a question, that Supreme Court justice lights up. 
it's a really cool site if you're interested in these cases. And of course, I encourage people to read cases if they want to really understand them and want to justify or have a reason to understand and justify what their opinion is because far too many people are very, very passionate about opinions they haven't read and it's obvious when they're talking about it on the radio or cable news or wherever and it's kind of embarrassing for them. So don't be that guy. So like I said, it was a five to four decision in favor of limiting the First Amendment. They made up a new judicially created standard, modifying the last standard that the Supreme Court, majority of them, had made up. So never let it be said, I don't let my opinions be obvious. I'm completely with dissent in this case. And just one vote made the difference here. We'll go over what the majority and what the dissent said and why they are different and why the dissent is correct. Although they lost, right? The majority opinion was written by Chief Justice Warren Burger. He was appointed by Richard Nixon. He served on the bench from 69 to 86, and he lived until the year of 95, so another nine years. He retired and lived another nine years. So I've been looking at when justices historically leave the bench. Do they serve until death, or do they retire before them? So Berger retired, and he had been on the D.C. Circuit and prior to that, he had been an assistant United States Attorney General. That was his path to the U.S. Supreme Court. He was joined by Colorado's own Byron White. He was nominated by JFK. White served on the bench from 62 to 93, 30 years and change. And he retired. He also lived another nine years. He died at the age of 84 in Denver, and he's buried here. He's a Colorado guy, right? He was a football star at CU and at one time was the highest paid player in the NFL. In government, after he became a lawyer, he was also an assistant United States Attorney General. Also joining majority, Harry Blackman, who was nominated by Richard Nixon. He served on the court from 1970 until 94, about 25 years. He retired also and lived for another five years. He was 90 years old when he passed away. And prior to being on the U.S. Supreme Court, he was on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal. So he was a federal appellate judge already. Lewis Powell, also with the majority, also nominated by Richard Nixon. Four of these guys were nominated by Nixon. He was on the bench from 1972 until 87, so about 15 years, and he retired, died 11 years later, and he was 90 years old when he passed away. Finally, future Chief Justice William Rehnquist was also with the 5-4 majority. He was appointed to bench by Nixon. He was a, so he was an associate justice from 72 until 1986, and then in 86, that's when Reagan appointed him, promoted him to Chief Justice, and he was Chief Justice from 1986 until 2005, so he was on the bench for decades as well. He was on the bench until he passed away. He did not retire. He had also been an assistant United States Attorney General prior to joining the Supreme Court. Now, dissent, one, there was two dissents. One was written by William Douglas, and that was just him writing. He was appointed by FDR, so we're getting to an older dude here, right, compared to the other ones. He served from 1939 until 1975. That's 36 years. These guys are on the bench for a long time, or they certainly can be. So even being on the bench for 36 years, he retired and lived another five years and died at the age of 81. He had been chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission for FDR. Another dissent was written by... William Brennan, and he was also joined in his dissent by Potter Stewart and Thurgood Marshall. Brennan was appointed by Eisenhower. He was on the bench for about 34 years, from 1956 until 1990. He retired, lived another seven years, and he died at the age of 91. He had been on the New Jersey State Supreme Court. Potter Stewart, in the dissent, also appointed by Ike. He was on the bench from 58 to 1981. Also retired, lived another four years, died at 70 years old. He had been on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, so also he was a federal appellate judge before getting bumped up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Finally, the last dissenter, and at the time the least 
Sr., the most junior Supreme Court justice, was Thurgood Marshall. He was appointed by LBJ in 1967. He was on the bench until 1991 when he retired, lived another two years, passed away at 84 years old. He had been Solicitor General for LBJ and had been on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals as an appellate judge. So that's your five to four. Majority was nominated by four Republicans and one Democrat. So the five justices in the majority, four of them were nominated by Republicans, one by Democrat. And then the four-person dissent, written down the middle, two were nominated by Democrats, two were nominated by Republicans. So this one doesn't really seem to be strictly partisan, for whatever that's worth. Nixon had nominated four of these guys, almost half, right? Trump has only done two of them, nominated two, and the progressives are going to be apoplectic if he gets just one more. And at what point? At one point, FDR had eight of the nine. He was president for so long. So progressives were cool with that, and they're not cool with Trump. Selective outrage is unbecoming. So what did the majority say? So we'll start off quoting the chief justice in the opinion he wrote to, to start us off to kind of lay out the issues. He says, this is one of a group of obscenity pornography cases being reviewed by the court in a re-examination of standards enunciated in earlier cases involving what Mr. Justice Harlan called the intractable obscenity problem. All right, let's stop there for a moment. It's only intractable because the Supreme Court has made it that way. It's not intractable if one actually applies the language of the First Amendment like Brennan and Douglas in the dissent would do. It is only intractable because some justices don't like some things being published or produced or disseminated. And defining what can be and what can't be is the part that's intractable. And of course, Justice John Marshall Harlan II was mentioned there by the Chief Justice in this opinion. Whenever Justice John Marshall Harlan, first or second, but in this case the second one is mentioned, I'm going to refer to the second's statement that should be engraved in stone above every courthouse. That statement is... And he said this in Reynolds versus Sims, which is a case that we discussed in an earlier episode of the law. There is a current mistaken view of the Constitution and the constitutional function of this court. This view, in short, is that every major social ill in this country can find its cure in some constitutional principle, and this court should take the lead in promoting reform when other branches of government fail to act. The Constitution is not a panacea. Justice John Marshall Harlan II says, Not a panacea for every blot upon the public welfare, nor should this court be thought of as a general haven of reform movements. Damn, that's good. Too bad it is almost completely ignored by the Supreme Court. Back to the opinion, Miller versus California. Chief Justice wrote, Appellant, that's Miller, conducted a mass mailing campaign to advertise the sale of illustrated books, euphemistically called adult material. After a jury trial, he was convicted of violating this California statute, which is a misdemeanor, by knowingly distributing obscene matter. Of course, it was matter, because if it had been antimatter, it would have exploded. Miller was convicted on his conduct, the court goes on, in causing five unsolicited advertising brochures to be sent through the mail in an envelope addressed to a restaurant in Newport Beach, California. The envelope was opened by the manager of the restaurant and his mother. They had not requested the brochures. They complained to the police. All right, so let's talk practical matters here. Who sends unsolicited brochures like that? That is just a bad business decision, separate and apart from the legality of it. Compile a mailing list of people that might be interested in it. They have some reason to believe they won't be mad or offended upon receiving this. Don't send random dirty pictures out. But after he did, who calls the police on that? 
I mean, these people did, obviously. You know, I throw out most of the mail I get these days. Just throw it out. The court goes on. These brochures that were mailed out advertised four books entitled Intercourse, Man, Woman, Sex Orgies Illustrated, and Fourth, An Illustrated History of Pornography. And a film was also advertised entitled Marital Intercourse. While the brochures contain some descriptive printed material, primarily they consist of pictures and drawings very explicitly depicting men and women in groups of two or more, I guess that would be the orgy one, engaging in a variety of sexual activities with genitals often prominently displayed. They weren't just displayed, they were prominently displayed. Chief Justice goes on, writing for the majority, this case involves the application of a state, California in this case, the state's criminal obscenity statute to a situation in which sexually explicit materials have been thrust by aggressive sales action the mailing, upon unwilling recipients who had in no way indicated any desire to receive such materials. Now, unsolicited mail is a problem, and not just when you're getting dirty pictures. Like I was saying before, I just throw it away. I think most people throw it away. I routinely make a stop between walking from my mailbox back inside my house, stop in the garage, and I've got a recycling bin in there. Most mail never makes it inside. Most of it goes in that purple bin. And I think it's important to note that there is a difference between sending unsolicited material and sending something to someone who's asked for it. And it, if it is being thrust, as the Chief Justice said, on someone who didn't request it, that is not a choice the person is making. Now, if you see it, like, like, kind of like seeing it on a billboard if you're driving down a street, you're not consenting to see it. You're not asking to see it. You didn't buy a ticket. So having it sent to you without asking for it or without requesting it or seeing it on a billboard if you're driving through a street in public, that's different than walking into the back room, perusing the videotapes like they did in the old days. One is voluntary and consensual, the other is not. So that is an important thing to note. Footnote two here has a good discussion of actual definitions and how the court makes specific legal definitions, like obscenity, that are different from everyday definitions. So the actual definition of obscenity, which the court notes, would include, in my opinion, the federal debt. Are we going to ban discussion of it or dissemination of material about it? So if you want to see some real obscenity, you can go right now to usdebtclock.org and tell me what you see isn't obscene. I put a link to that obscenity in the show notes. And here's a crazy idea. Once again, free markets can go a long way to solving some of these problems. If you have a private mail service, they would offer the equivalent of a spam filter, but for real mail. So you can have email spam just never reach your inbox if you set that up. USPS does not do this. United States Postal Service, the government-run postal service, does not do that. They won't let you do that. You cannot opt out of it. My P.O. box is stuffed with advertising flyers every time I open it. And it's kind of a pain because I've got to take those out and make sure some real mail didn't get like stuck in there somewhere. But the postal service will not abide by my request, or anyone's, to stop littering the P.O. box with this stuff that goes right into the recycling bin because the U.S. Postal Service gets money from that litter. A private service would not have to do that. A private service, and you might have to pay more for this service, but it would be available. You could say, don't send me junk mail or don't send me particular materials. There would be options of what you would agree to accept or not. You might have to pay more for that, but it would be available. It's not even an option with the nationalized post office. And as a quick aside, as I want to do, the United States Post Office is authorized by the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 lists the things federal government can do, but it is not required. And I hear people make that mistake all the time. They say the federal government has to run a post office. They do not. 
The powers granted to Congress in the Constitution are permission. They're not requirements. Like, Congress can declare war. It's not required they declare war, but they have that option. They have the option to operate a post office. They're not required to operate a post office. They just have been for centuries, poorly, and losing money. Back to this opinion. It is in this context that we, the U.S. Supreme Court, are called on to define the standards which must be used to identify obscene material that a state may regulate without infringing on the First Amendment as applicable to the states through the 14th Amendment. And as you all know from listening to this podcast, the 14th Amendment is cited here due to the doctrine adopted by the Supreme Court known as incorporation because originally the Bill of Rights which, as you guys also know, should really be called the Bill of Restrictions because it doesn't grant any rights to anyone. It restricts what the government can do. So it's a Bill of Restrictions on the government. The Bill of Restrictions did not apply to the states when it was passed. It only applied to the federal government, restricted what the federal government could do. So that's why the 14th Amendment is mentioned. They use the 14th Amendment, which is adopted after the Civil War, as a way to make the Bill of Rights slash Restrictions apply to the states. And we've talked about it in the past, but I just wanted, to, just wanted to mention it here. So the court discusses a prior Supreme Court case, this Roth versus U.S. case from 1957. The court here in Miller in the 73 case says, the key to that holding in Roth was the court's rejection of the claim that obscene materials were protected by the First Amendment. Five justices joined in the opinion stating, all ideas have an even the slightest redeeming social importance, unorthodox ideas, controversial ideas, even ideas hateful to the prevailing climate of opinion, have the full protection of the First Amendment guarantees. So far, so good. But here comes the rest of it. Unless excludable because they encroach upon the limited area of more important interests. Okay, that last phrase is frightening. The First Amendment applies unless excludable because they encroach upon the limited area of more important interests. What are these more important interests? What is more important than the absolute restriction upon infringing upon the freedom of speech in the First Amendment? Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. The Supreme Court here has amended that. They've added something to it, like they've done in many cases we've talked about. Congress shall make no law unless more important government interests are involved. That's insane. Who decides what's more important for one thing? That person or persons is going to change. It provides no consistency. It's nothing on which anyone can rely. And it is a direct repeal of the language of the First Amendment. No law, period. Not no law unless more important interests are involved. I mean, I'm just aghast. Everyone should be aghast at this. And this is just one example. They've done it in other instances as well. We talked about the Kelo decision, where they rewrote the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. We've talked about the Commerce Clause, where they rewrote the power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce to include things that affect interstate commerce. Completely different meaning. And that was in Episode 5 when we talked about Wickard v. Filburn. Very important. So when these important interests become something we have to determine, that is going to change. Whereas a restriction on making any law is a constant That is a consistent standard, and that is what the Constitution says. And trying to explain why the Constitution doesn't mean what it says, which is what the court is doing and has done in the cases it's citing, that is pure judicial activism. So the court goes on, implicit in the history of the First Amendment is the rejection of obscenity as utterly without redeeming social importance. That sentence provides zero guidance because obscenity is not defined. The Supreme Court has attempted 
to define it, has redefined it many times, which they talk about. Indeed, the Supreme Court here starts off by talking about the definition of obscenity as being intractable, which is hard to control or deal with. They're admitting that. They're acknowledging that. But it's only a problem. It's only intractable. It's only hard to control or deal with because the Supreme Court refuses to accept the way the First Amendment is written, the way Brennan and Douglas in the dissent state that no law means no law. Applying no law is not intractable. The court goes on. The majority here, which I think is wrong, they say, it has been well observed that such utterances are no essential part, this is obscenity, no such utterances like obscenity that we've defined as obscenity poorly, are no essential part of any exposition of ideas and are of such slight social value as a step to truth that any benefit that may be derived from them is clearly outweighed by the social interest in order and morality. We hear that all the time. Social order, law and order, you got to do what you're told. And morality, the government has to control our morality or we're all going to become wanton sinners. But listen, again, let's look at what the Supreme Court is saying. What words are they using? They're talking about any truth that might benefit is clearly outweighed by this social interest in order and morality. Clearly outweighed. Where is this weighing mechanism in the First Amendment? Where is this weighing mechanism in the Bill of Rights, Bill of Restrictions? It's not there. It's made up. It is 100% judicial activism. Here's a great example. Lots of conservatives ask in relation to the Second Amendment, what part of shall not be infringed do you not understand? That's an absolutely legitimate, great question. That same question applies to the First Amendment. What part of no law do you not get? Let us not be selective in our indignation. The same idea applies to the Second Amendment, shall not be infringed. There's no weighing apparatus there. There's no, well, some things are more important than the Second Amendment. Same thing in the First Amendment. What part of no law, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. What part of that is confusing? Just like no law and shall not be infringed are crystal clear language. Supreme Court in this Miller case says, We hold that obscenity is not within the area of constitutionally protected speech or press. Again, that statement provides zero help because obscenity is not defined. And that's the intractable part, as the court notes. They note it, and then they don't solve that problem. They think they are. They're trying to, but they're not. And that's what the dissent points out. So a prior test of the Supreme Court, prior to this Miller case, said that to prove obscenity, it must be affirmatively established that the material is utterly without redeeming social value. All right, you want to talk about splitting hairs of angels on the head of a pin? Who's going to decide what's utterly without redeeming social value? So you've got to decide if it's got any redeeming social value. Is there value that's redeeming? Is it social value? Or is that completely absent? There's absolutely no objective standard there. Ask a thousand people, you're going to get a thousand different answers. The, the Constitution is supposed to provide us with a consistent way to solve these problems. And they're doing the opposite of that in this time period with their discussion of what the First Amendment protects. So trying to determine what is has any socially redeeming value just shows the absurdity of all of these different judicially created tests the Supreme Court's coming up with. So the court, in this Miller case, quotes Justice Harlan II. Such consideration caused Justice Harlan to wonder if the utterly without redeeming social value test had any meaning at all. Well, Mr. Justice John Marshall Harlan II is correct to so wonder because the answer is no, it does not have any meaning at all. It is entirely useless. So the Supreme Court is asking these questions 
They just don't like the answer. They want to stop this. And they don't have a legitimate constitutional way to do it, so they start making things up, just like Second Amendment opponents do. Court goes on with more of this. It says, For in the area of freedom of speech and press, the courts must always remain sensitive to any infringement on genuinely serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific expression. Genuinely serious. That's another purely subjective idea. Is it serious? Is it genuinely serious? The point of the First Amendment is to do away with that subjectivity. When it says no law, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. There is no subjectivity to the word no, to the phrase no law. Genuinely serious is 100% subjective, with no way to know what is allowed and what is not. There's no subjectivity to the word no. Now, not in a legal sense. Can no be used sarcastically in casual conversation? Sure. But the First Amendment is not casual conversation, nor is it sarcasm. No means no in the Constitution without exception. Court goes on. This much has been categorically settled by the court, by us. Obscene material is unprotected by the First Amendment. That's their conclusion. That is categorically wrong, categorically nonsense, because the court cannot, by its own admission, define obscenity, and it admits it repeatedly. And that's what the dissent points out. How can you make something illegal that you cannot define? How can people know what is allowed and what is not when it is undefinable, when it is intractable? And they've tried like five times, and each time they change it because it's not working. This doesn't work either. So having discussed getting it wrong so many times, they go on. As a result, we, the U.S. Supreme Court, now confine the permissible scope of such regulation of obscenity to works which depict or describe sexual conduct. The state offense must also, the state criminal law, must also be limited to works which, taken as a whole, appeal to the purient interest in sex, which portray sexual conduct in a patently offensive way, and which, taken as a whole, do not have serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. That's supposed to be more helpful than those prior tests? Lots of highfalutin words and 100% useless as a practical matter. So now they've got to decide if some work appeals to the purient interest in a patently offensive way, which, taken as a whole, have no serious, serious literary, artistic, etc., etc. value. That's not a definition. It's worse than a moving target. It's a target that doesn't exist. So how can you hit it? So the majority makes a reference to Brennan's dissent, and they say, Mr. Justice Brennan now maintains that no formulation of this court or, or of Congress or of the states can adequately distinguish obscene material unprotected by the First Amendment from protected expression. Yes, he does say that, and yes, he is correct. The majority admits they've got no such formulation. They never have. They ignore their own acknowledged failure because they don't like this stuff. And not liking stuff is not a constitutional argument. So this next quote from the majority is nigh on delusional. But today, the court says in Miller, for the first time since Roth was decided in 1957, a majority of this court has agreed to, on concrete guidelines to isolate hardcore pornography from expression protected by the First Amendment. Concrete guidelines? They gotta be kidding, right? Y'all remember what they came up with? Calling that test concrete or even a guideline is a joke. The court basically acknowledges that. After calling it a concrete guideline, they say, this may not be an easy road, free from difficulty, but no amount of fatigue should lead us to adopt a convenient institutional rationale and absolutist everything goes few of the First Amendment because it will lighten our burdens. All right, shouldn't the concrete guidelines actually provide an easy road? Those Jersey barriers down the highway? 
That's a concrete guideline. You don't go over there. You stay between these concrete barriers. That's not what we've got here. It's, it's, it's an absurd metaphor. They say the First Amendment isn't an anything goes proposition. So what does no law abridging mean then? It literally means anything goes. And they're denying that because they don't like this stuff. So the Supreme Court is spending pages and pages and pages trying to justify why the First Amendment doesn't mean what it says. But the First Amendment is absolute, as the dissent points out. The majority continues to try to make sense of this. They say, under a national constitution, under our constitution, fundamental First Amendment limitations on the powers of the states do not vary from community to community. So far, so good. But, they say, this does not mean that there are or should or can be fixed, uniform, national standards of precisely what appeals to the purient interest or is patently offensive. Those aren't concrete guidelines. Those are ephemeral. And you got to love it when you hear the word but, because it starts off okay, right? Fundamental First Amendment limitations on the powers of the states do not vary from community to community. But, if you guys watch Game of Thrones, Ned Stark once said, nothing someone says before the word but really counts which is absolutely true here. First Amendment limitations on the powers of the states do not vary from community to community, but, so everything before that doesn't count. They just contradict it by saying but and continue on. In sum, the Supreme Court majority continues. We reaffirm the Roth holding that obscene material is not protected by the First Amendment and they don't define what obscenity is. We also reaffirm, we hold, that such material can be regulated by the states subject to the specific safeguards, those concrete ones, enunciated, absolutely useless safeguards, without a showing that the material is utterly without redeeming social value. That was the old test. They're getting rid of that. You don't have to show that anymore. And we hold that obscenity is to be determined by applying contemporary community standards, not national standards. All right, so with the advent of the internet, that community standard rule is also completely unworkable. But this was 73, they didn't have the internet. So in Douglas' dissent, and then there were three other dissenters on an opinion written by Brennan, Douglas wrote correctly, Today we leave open the way for California to send a man to prison for distributing brochures that advertise books in a movie under freshly written standards defining obscenity, which until today, never part of any law. The court has worked hard to define obscenity and concededly has failed. The dissent is correct. That is a true statement. Douglas goes on. My brother Stewart in Jacob Bellis versus Ohio, which we discussed in episode 33, commented that the difficulty of the court in giving content to obscenity was that it was faced with the task of trying to define what may be indefinable. Yeah, that's why they have these ever-changing made-up standards. And Douglas says, those are the standards we ourselves have written into the Constitution. And so he's acknowledging that they're writing stuff into the Constitution that's not there. They have no legitimate authority to do that. Of course, the Supreme Court's been doing it for ages. Douglas is tacitly acknowledging that they don't have the authority to do that, and he's admonishing the majority. Yet, the majority wins. Douglas goes on in his dissent to send men to jail for violating standards they cannot understand, construe, and apply is a monstrous thing to do in a nation dedicated to fair trials and due process. The Supreme Court can't apply these standards. And some businessman who just wants to sell dirty pictures is going to try to, or is, is expected to be able to apply these rules the Supreme Court can't apply. And the Supreme Court's the one making them up. Douglas goes on. The idea that the First Amendment permits government to ban publications that are offensive to some puts an ominous gloss on freedom of the press. As is intimated by the court's opinion, the materials before us may be garbage. 
but so is much of what is said in political campaigns, in the daily press, on TV, or over the radio. Douglas is correct. He then discusses a, a case where the Supreme Court, in another time, had overturned an Ohio statute that made it illegal for people to gather in public and annoy. That was the word in the statute. You cannot annoy other people in a group in public. So Douglas says about that, how can we deny Ohio the convenience of punishing people who annoy others and allow California power to punish people who publish materials that offends some people? That is difficult to square with constitutional requirements. Good point, right? You can't annoy people. Well, what does that mean? You can't offend people. Well, how do I know what's going to offend them? Why are my rights dependent upon what somebody else feels and thinks about what I'm doing. It doesn't, not in reality, but it does in the judiciary. And Douglas makes a good point. He says, if there are to be restraints on what is obscene, then a constitutional amendment should be the way of achieving the end. There are societies where religion and mathematics are the only free segments. It would be a dark day for America if that were our destiny, but the people can make it such if they choose to write obscenity into the constitution and define it. So what he's saying is, if you guys want to actually criminalize certain pictures, certain movies, certain words, then let's amend the Constitution and do it that way. The Supreme Court shouldn't be amending the Constitution by an opinion, and he's right, and so is Brennan. Douglas goes on, too many, the Song of Solomon, which is in the Bible, is obscene. I do not think we, the judges, were ever given the constitutional power to make definitions of obscenity. He's right. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or press, etc. No law is not a weighing mechanism. It doesn't say Congress can make a law if other things are more important than someone's rights. So Douglas and Brennan, the four dissenting justices, are right. The majority conclusion is pure judicial activism. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law. We discussed Miller versus California in episode 57. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. If you disagree, holla at me. Twitter at TheLawDKW and Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. I am available, speaking engagements, consulting, teaching. Contact Bethany at Speakeasy Ideas for details on that. And until next week, my friends, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.